You know, I, I was a young preacher and wanting to do a seminar on apologetics in uh, my hometown of Greensboro, North Carolina. And I, I had, it was memorable for two reasons. I had like 75 pastors together, and this was 1996, so this was a ways back. But I was just hitting the road as a speaker, and I'm doing this thing on apologetics and defend the faith. So there's question time, and this uh, man raises his hand. He goes, yeah, i got a question. And um, I said, sure. And he goes, um, all morning you've been talking about C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis. I get it. C.S. Lewis must be important. But forgive me, who is C.S. Lewis? And I was like, oh, wow. Um, didn't know who C.S. Lewis was. The other thing was, I guess I kind of went long, and I kind of told him everything I knew and a few things I was guessing at. And this older pastor comes up to me and he goes, young man, do you know what a sermon and a biscuit have in common? I said, what? He said, both are better with a little shortening. So uh, anyway, uh, point taken. But I'm going to keep that in mind. And Pastor Jeremy, what time should a guy like me be finishing this session? Really? Praise the Lord. I have 45 minutes. Hallelujah. Man, uh, giving a preacher 45 minutes is like giving a T-bone steak to a German shepherd. Uh, This is great. Hey, look at this. Here's a newspaper clipping. Jesus came to take away your sins, not your mind. Bill Maher on Politically Incorrect, you know that show. He said this, and it's amazing he's had so many people on his show, many Christians. Our mutual friend Frank Turek has been on there And somebody asked Bill Maher, what do you think about Christians? He said, Christians are a group of people who think they're going to go to heaven because they're better than everybody. Which is precisely not what Christians think. We, like Paul, I think I'm the chief of sinners. Christians know that we're not better than everybody. There's a perception in our culture that to be a Christian means to switch off your mind. On The Simpsons, not that I watch The Simpsons much, but... um, uh, Lisa Simpson, uh, Homer and Marge's daughter, got her IQ tested, and it was 156, which is pretty intelligent. And the teacher said, 156 IQ, that's amazing for a Christian. So there's all these little jabs at Christianity as if we're ignorant or something like that. What I want to talk about, here's Newsweek magazine, The Decline and Fall of Christian America. By the way, that cover from a, a year ago was riffing on a 1964 cover of Time that was black and red, Is God Dead? The Decline and Fall of Christian America. That article talked about the fact that, look, um, Jerry Falwell is dead. Uh, Adrian Rogers and James Kennedy, Chuck Colson, gone on. Churches are closing. 25 years ago, we had half a million Protestant churches. Today, it's about 345,000. There have been 150,000 churches closed in the last quarter century, roughly. And Billy Graham is housebound and doesn't get out much. Uh, We've had the great evangelical empire, and it's about to be gone. Shortly after this, uh, there was the decline and fall of Newsweek magazine, actually, as they ceased publication. But what I want to talk about is situational awareness, the church and current culture. It's been my privilege to have a number of friends that have been in the military. My dad was a veteran, actually, and I've known a lot of friends that were in law enforcement, and I've heard different ones talk about being situationally aware. And I want to just say how 
Uh, proud I am to know one of America's finest first responders, my dear friend Donald Sanchez. Am I correct? You were a first responder on 9-11. Am I right? Uh, NYPD, my friend. Give this dear brother a hand. This is... But um, Donald probably knows what I'm talking about with situational awareness. And, and for the Christian, I want to talk about being situationally aware. Now, for a lot of Christians, uh, the extent of the faith is, hey, I, my sins are forgiven. I've got a home in heaven. My name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I'm going to die and go to heaven to be with Jesus one day. If you're a Christian, that's true. You've been born again. You're en route to glory. But while we're down here, we've got a mission. Um, look at this. Uh, I've been very fascinated by Will Durant. Now, if you don't know who Will Durant is, oh man, what a, what a brilliant guy he was. He said this, the greatest question of our time is not communism versus individualism, not Europe versus America, not even East versus West. The greatest question of our time is, can man bear to live without God? Now, Norman Geisler Great, great, one of the world's preeminent living theologians, incredible defender of the faith, actually met Will Durant. Will and Ariel Durant were a married couple. They were great historians. They won the Presidential Medal of Freedom for their multi-volume set, The History of Civilization. If you don't know who Will and Ariel Durant were, they were, they were to history what... Steve Jobs has been to computers. They were great Americans, but Will Durant, shortly before he passed, he he survived his wife, he became a born-again Christian. Amazing. I'm a huge fan of Will Durant. Norm Geisler actually knew him. It's amazing. But I think Durant was right. The question is not uh, prosperity versus poverty. The question is not really a developed nation versus a third world nation. The question... Can this planet survive without God? And I want to take it even a little bit deeper. The question, can America survive without belief in moral absolutes? I've got to tell you, the thing that everybody's missing right now is that everybody's talking about, um, what right do you have to say gays can't marry? What right do you have to pray in a public place? You know, it's over everybody's head. The question is not necessarily, um, do do gay people have the right to get married? The question is not, do atheists have the right to be guaranteed never seeing a cross or being exposed to religion? Look, the question that your elected officials are missing, the question most preachers are missing, the question even many Christians are missing, is... Can we survive in the absence of a moral code? Can you and I live, at least as we have lived now for 238 years, can we live in a moral vacuum? And the answer, I think, is obviously, clearly, no. I mean, do you understand? Look, two American citizens uh, were beheaded and the videos were put on the Internet. And our president says... Uh, I'm not going to say we're in war. Remember, Secretary of Defense said, uh, no, we're in war. Look, uh, the beheading of an American citizen and the rejection of all pleas, can we negotiate, can we uh, get his freedom? Pastor Saeed, who's been held in an Iranian jail, who's an American citizen, um, these are acts of war. 
But our president, I don't know if you know, said that um, in this is uh, in the book Dreams of My Father, if there were a world war, he would not side against Islam. I don't know if you know that that is in his book. Now, here's my point. In the original Pirates of the Caribbean movie, do you remember Johnny Depp in that movie? Says to one of the, they're on this ship with all these creatures, and uh, he says to the ghost, I don't believe in ghost stories. And the ghost says, well, you'd better, you're in one. Uh, You might not believe in war, and you might not believe in uh, talk about religion and politics, but I want to tell you, if you are a Christian and you want to be situationally aware, you'd better understand that our future hangs on who prevails in the discussion about God, truth, and morality. Um, Now, you might have been taught that preachers and good Christian polite folk don't talk about politics. Um, I'm sorry if you were raised that way because it's unbiblical and it's certainly non-historical. Jesus was involved in politics. When he talked with the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, Jesus was engaging with the senators and congressmen of his day At the time of Christ in Jerusalem, Israel had a standing army, a standing police force, and though they were somewhat under the auspices of the Roman government, they very much had their own governing body. And it was the Sanhedrin, the 70. And when Jesus dialogued and and said, uh, you know, is it lawful for a man to live with his neighbor's wife and you generation of vipers, he was debating the politicians of the day. And the Bible has a lot to say. Romans chapter 13 says that the governmental authorities are permitted by God. And and, uh, there's a lot to say about uh, politics in the Bible. I'm glad that our founding fathers, the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, they brought God into the discussion of their forming of a body politic. Because look, they said... um, All persons are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights among these life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. In other words, they they predicated the American Revolution on this fact. And, And if you get nothing else in this talk, get this. Look, your rights do not come from government piecemeal. Your rights come from God. That's why Jefferson, who was not a secularist, by the way, Jefferson said, your rights are inalienable. In other words, no government can take your rights from you. A government might obstruct your rights, but you have inherent rights just as much as your gender is part of who you are innately, inherently. Your rights come from God. The role of government is not to give you any rights, to guard the rights that God's already given you. And here's what they wrote, appealing to God for the rectitude of our intentions. In other words, the founding fathers said, look, if we're in the wrong, we'll answer to God for it. That's how much we will act on our convictions. And friend, it is time for the church of Jesus Christ to again discover some convictions and act on these convictions. Situational awareness involves step one, understanding that we're in a battle for the soul of this nation. I said this to the youth, I'll say it in here. The greatest nation in the history of the world, second only to Israel under Solomon, has been the United States of America. 
and we were a great nation, and we were the envy of the world, and we were the place to where all refugees of the planet fled because we were based on a Judeo-Christian worldview, the Ten Commandments. And you know who said that? Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his 1963 Pulitzer Prize winning book, Why We Can't Wait. When I'm, I was in a debate, listen to this. Oh my goodness, you don't think we're in a, a war of worldviews? August 19th, 2014. So this is a month ago. I'm in Washington, D.C., a show called The Tom Hartman Show. T-H-O-M-A-N-N, Tom Hartman. And um, Tom is an atheist, and he's very invested in the left. And so um, he said, you know, and this is pretty much verbatim, he goes, you know all the founding fathers were atheists? I said, no, they weren't. And he said, yes, they were. I said, um, no, they weren't. Of the 56 signers of the Declaration, 54 were Christians, and even Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson were more evangelical than most preachers today. And I began to share some quotes. And he said, are you reading quotes that are made up? Uh, and I said, no, these are matters of record. By the way, uh, George Washington himself, you ought to read a book. Here's a book, and I don't ever recommend a book unless I myself have read it at least once. But the faith of our founding father, the spiritual journey of George Washington. Incredible book. Washington kept a prayer diary. And the entries read like this. He would write in his prayer diary, Heavenly Father, before whom I can only appear wrapped in the righteousness of thy dear son, Jesus Christ. Dear God, uh, I implore thee the forgiveness of my sins which is made possible only through the blood of thy dear son, Jesus. George Washington wrote that. By the way, the First Amendment, hang tight, the First Amendment that is often cited as uh, separation of church and state, which the First Amendment doesn't say, by the way. First Amendment says Congress will make no law regarding the establishment of religion nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Okay, when we recognize a moral code, we're not establishing a religion. Now, oh, get this, please hit the record button in your brain. When Thomas Jefferson wrote The Laws of Nature and Nature's God, let's go back to the 1700s. When they talked about self-evident truth, they talked about common law, natural law, uh, moral law. What they were talking about was that law written on everybody's heart. In other words, the world over, we, can, we all recognize, everybody knows it's wrong to steal. It's wrong to tell a lie. It's wrong to uh, steal my neighbor's wife. Uh, it's wrong to curse and kill your parents. Uh, you might call it the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 1 through 17. And so, look, the establishment of religion and the recognition of a moral code are two different things. And this is something very few leaders today realize. Um, at the time of the, the Declaration of Independence, half the, the states had taxed state-supported churches already. Now, the man that wrote the First Amendment so you've got to understand, our nation was not a secular nation. Our nation was not an anti-Christian nation. But this is a bombshell. The man that wrote the First Amendment was named Fisher Ames, A-M-E-S. Fisher Ames wrote the First Amendment. Free speech, 
Congress is not going to prohibit you from exercising your religion. At least they're not supposed to, although they prohibit it all the time now. If you're a Christian and you own a bakery, uh, get ready to be locked up if you say, I don't do wedding cakes for gay marriages. If you own a catering service or you're a photographer, get ready to go to jail if you say my religious beliefs prohibit me from doing photographs at a gay marriage. Fisher Ames, listen, who wrote the First Amendment, he said that the Bible should be taught in all public schools because it is the best vehicle for teaching morality to young people. Now, can you imagine teaching the Bible in public schools today? There'd be enough lawsuits to keep crooked attorneys busy for three decades. Here's what I ask when I'm debating at colleges. I'll say, the man that wrote the First Amendment wanted the Bible in public schools. They believed in universal morality. Uh, Was he right or was he wrong? And how is it that 21st century secularists know more about the application of the First Amendment than the man who wrote the First Amendment. Isn't that odd? So it's August 19th, I'm on the Tom Hartman show. He said, the founders were atheists. I said, no, they weren't. And I said, well, look, let's forget the founders. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., 1963, his Pulitzer Prize winning book, very artfully, very accurately, Dr. King argued that America was based on Christianity and the civil rights movement was based on Christianity. And Dr. King quoted Thomas Aquinas, quoted St. Augustine, and Dr. King said, look, you're made in the image of God because you're made in God's image. You have worth, you have value, you have dignity. When I honor you, I'm honoring the one whose image you bear. And Dr. King said this, because God exists, the Creator exists, the Bible gives us this view of humanity, um, the civil rights movement is valid because Christianity is valid, And not only that, America itself was based on Christianity. So I said, Tom Hartman, Mr. Atheist, uh, Dr. King said that America was based on Christianity. Was he right or was he wrong? And he quickly said he was wrong. I said, he said the civil rights movement was based on Christianity being true. And Dr. King argued, if Christianity is not true, the civil rights movement is invalid. Give up Christianity and we'll give up civil rights. Was, was he right or was he wrong? He said he was wrong. So we're on live radio. I said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Hit the pause button. I'm not believing this. You are so invested in your atheism. You're so invested in your agenda to try to make this a secular nation. Trying to expunge God from public consciousness. You want to be on record. This is August 19th, 2014, Washington, D.C., Tom Hartman. It was his show, not mine. I was the guest. I said, you want to say Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was wrong? He, and he goes, yes. I'm like, wow. You're invested, dude. Now watch this. Um, it's one thing when they try to gloss over you know, D.L. Moody and Jonathan Edwards and the great Christian leaders of years past. And Alexis de Tocqueville in 1813, America is great because she's godly and good. Hey, I, I know they're going to spin that. I told my wife about seven or eight years ago, I said, you watch. We will see the day when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is eliminated from the textbooks. The Southern Christian Leadership Coalition, which was the organization of the civil rights movement, And by the way, I've studied this copiously. 
The first thing, do you know to, to march with Dr. King, you had to fill out a questionnaire of about 20 questions. And you had to be observed for like six weeks. One of the reasons that it was so successful and so beautiful is because it was peaceful. It was prayerful. And the point one on Dr. King's checklist, I will meditate daily on the life and teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. I told Angie about seven years ago, I said, you watch. The day will come when Dr. King is just conveniently mm, sort of forgotten. Okay, I was at a meeting two weeks ago. Greenville, South Carolina, there's a, there's a nationalized public school curriculum called Common Core. It's a bad thing. You need to know about Common Core, and you need to call your school board. Common Core does not mention Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once. The history of Common Core doesn't mention Thomas Jefferson. You know, he only wrote the Declaration of Independence. Um, and he worked with James Madison to write the Constitution, it, it, it mentions George Washington in one way. It says, he was our first president. Now, the glories of Islam, multiculturalism, aberrant lifestyles, oh, it's all there. But the history of America, and friend, um, I've taken too much of my time to rant here, but I'm telling you, the, the pathway back to sanity, the pathway back begins with, assertion of belief in moral absolutes. There are some things that are morally right. There are some things that are morally wrong. By the way, let's, let me just give a little illustration. Uh, let's say, imagine this wall is this big, huge wall, and it's a plane that goes on in all directions forever. And let's say that we've got, this thing is, you know, 10 or 11 feet from that wall. This thing is 20 feet. Um, so, this is farther from that thing than those two objects. This is farther from that wall than this object. And of all things, this is closest to that wall. Now look, the only reason that you and I can know what is good, what is true, what is beautiful. Now think about that. The good, the true, the beautiful is because... Inside of our heart, we know there is an ultimate standard of what is good, true, beautiful. Think of the highest, the ultimate foundation of goodness, of, of love, of righteousness, of purity, holiness, virtue, beauty, everything good, everything true, everything wonderful, everything safe, everything loving, everything merciful, everything just and right. That ultimate foundation is God. Now look, how is it that we know Mother Teresa feeding the orphans in Calcutta was closer to the standard of good than Adolf Hitler torturing Jewish children in Auschwitz? Look, we can say that was good, this was bad, because there's an ultimate standard of good that these things stand in relation to. So when, when the, the secular world comes along and says, well, you know, who's to say what God is? Maybe there's no God. There's not your Christian God. Uh, there's no God. Look, look, if there's no God, there's no standard we can measure against. But this even goes for aesthetic judgments. 
Now, this is where some, some Christians are like, okay, I'm with you. If you want to praise the, the, the good and condemn the bad, I'm there. But hold on a second. Look, we get it. Um, a Billy Graham conforms more closely to an ultimate standard of good than does a Barack Obama. It's just a fact. But look, uh, think about this. Go to, go to Kansas City to the Nichols Art Museum, and you'll see a picture that's almost as big as that back wall, ginormous. And it's Water Lilies by Monet. And it's really, really beautiful. And if you get within about five feet, it's just dots, and it looks like a bunch of gibberish. You have to get back 25, 30 feet to see water lilies. And you're like, oh my goodness, what a beautiful thing. Um, I would submit to you that water lilies by Monet is more objectively beautiful than your dog vomiting on the carpet. But do you, do you understand in a world without God, in a world without a moral code, the dog's vomit on the carpet is every bit as beautiful or unbeautiful as the Four Freedoms by Norman Rockwell, Water Lilies by Monet, or any of the great art that we um, cherish. Hey, Pachelbel's Canon in D is probably played at some of your weddings. You know that? and a jackhammer tearing up the sidewalk. How can we legitimately say Canon in D is more beautiful than heavy equipment tearing up concrete? Because it conforms more closely to some ultimate standard of beauty and goodness. Look, we can only measure virtue, beauty, truth, because there's some ultimate, eternal, immovable, never-ending standard for these things to be true or false about. Um, it is better to be faithful to your spouse and to tell the truth and to forgive your enemies and show love and stand for truth than to just say whatever. But situational awareness involves the realization, dear friends, that we're, we're flying through empty space with no moral foundation on which to stand. And we're going to crash and break all of our bones and be deathly injured because we're going to hit this thing called reality. Situational awareness involves being aware of what's happening in the vicinity in order to understand how information events and one's own actions will impact goals and objectives both immediately in the near future. That's a mouthful. But I want to submit to you in the very short amount of time that I have left, and I wish I had like a whole day, that we in the church have got to be situationally aware. You've got to understand your situation. And I'm going to boil this down. The vicinity. What in the world is going on? What are our goals? Let me ask you, as a Christian, as a family, as a church, do you even have goals? Spiritual goals, I mean. I'm going to lead somebody to the Lord in the next 12 months. That's a goal. That's one worth setting. Our church is going to uh, begin to train young people to defend the faith and live for the Lord. That's a good goal. Goals and objectives both immediately and in the near future. We Christians, we need some, some uh, goals that are up close and some goals that are on the horizon. Proximate and ultimate. Now, I'm going to go forward. I'm going to skip some of this because I'm almost out of time. I'm going to skip that. All right. 
four rea- and then I'm going to talk about situational awareness. Now, hang with me. Realities of ministry in the 21st century. The number of people with recurring spiritual doubts seems to be growing in the Western world. Remember Will Durant? Let's go back to Will Durant. In, in 1977, and this was before he became a born-again Christian, Will Durant said this. Now listen carefully. I wish I had time to put it up there. He said, we survive because we were based on a moral code, the Ten Commandments. He said, I was raised as a Roman Catholic, and while I no longer, at least at that point, while I no longer believe in the church of my youth, I still believe in the moral code I was taught. Now listen carefully. Durant goes, but today we're living on a shadow of that moral awareness. See, it's forgotten. Uh, Adultery, not such a big deal anymore. Lying, uh, we all have to lie to get by. Um, Durant goes, look, we're living on the shadow of that moral code. My kids will live on the shadow of a shadow. Their grandkids will live on the shadow of a shadow of a shadow. He says, what will become of America when that shadow of a moral code is finally gone. Now, this brilliant man around 1984 became a born-again Christian before he died. But if Will Durant, one of the most brilliant thinkers of the 20th century, were alive today, he would say, panic, mayday, the moral code is all but forgotten. I would submit, my dear friends, our U.S. Constitution cannot survive in the absence of a complete uh, moral code. Listen, here's what I say, and and I hope you get this. I'll be at debates at universities, and I'll say, look, if you don't want to be a believer, you don't have to be a believer. You want to be an atheist? Be an atheist. I'm sorry for you, but if if you want to be a a non-believer, you can reject God. But don't tear down the framework that gives you the freedom to safely walk around as a non-theist. You want to do gay stuff? Go for it. I'm sorry for you, but if you want to be gay, you can be gay. But don't tear down the moral framework that gives you the freedom to safely walk around the USA as a non-heterosexual. See, here's what's wrong with the gays and the secularists. They want both things. They want the freedom and prosperity of America, but they're wanting to rip down the moral foundation on which America has stood for 238 years. See, look, to recognize God and some moral societal boundaries. For a lot of people, that's a bitter pill to swallow. But I would submit to you that that is a less bitter pill than the pill we're about to swallow, which is godless societal chaos. To all the gay people, although I don't think people are born gay, I think same-sex attraction is a struggle that people have due to certain wounds they suffer in their formative years. And I have um, a master's degree in developmental psychology, so I know a little bit about this. But let me say this. I would say, look, if you want to be gay, you can be gay, I suppose. But don't redefine marriage. Don't demand that the will of people be overturned, state constitutions be rewritten, the U.S. Constitution itself be imperiled. Because what they're doing... They're, they're in their quest to seek legitimization. They're tearing down America. Because look, 
if you want a world in which gay is okay, that depends on there not being a moral absolute. America, though, as Jefferson wrote, depended on there being moral absolutes. So to the gay, the secularist, the Muslim, I would say you can be those things, but don't tear down the milieu, the context, the backdrop that gives you the freedom to walk around in this otherwise Judeo-Christian culture. The number of uh, people with doubts will continue to grow. Those with spiritual doubts increasingly defy categorization. I meet people who claim to be Christian, but they're also Wiccans. I meet atheists who say they pray, really, in, in the interviews for the skeptics book. So people, because we've even, we're to the point where we've lost language being very meaningful. That's called deconstructionism, that words don't really mean things. Funny thing is that people have to use words to deny words. It's weird. Uh, I could tell you some really funny stories about that. Okay, number three, building reciprocal, authentic relationships, although time-consuming, is the key to helping lead people into an authentic, saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Make friends with an atheist. Eat dinner, make friends with a gay activist. I know we're not far from Raleigh. NC Equality Now is one of the gay activist legal teams. and they're, they're, uh, I, I debated one on TV, and they said, well, you know, the nature of marriage has always been fluid. Marriage has never been set as a man and a woman. I'm like, um, I'm pretty sure it has. Tell me, I, and, and I debated this, this NC Equality Now person, and I'm like, look, junk science, junk history, junk economics. They said, you know, marriage has never been set as only a man and a woman. I'm like, yeah. Uh, if gay marriage is opposed, it will cost North Carolina jobs. No, it won't. Um, but anyway, there's so much we could say. But you, you have to build friendships and build trust and honesty and respect. It takes years. was able to baptize a Muslim man I led to Christ at Pleasant Garden Baptist in Greensboro. But it took a year of friendship and trust building. And I'm not saying this is convenient or easy. I'm just saying it's what we have to do. Listen to this. Familiarity with apologetics is a necessity in ministering to 21st century pagans. And I'm not using the word pagan to be critical or cruel or sarcastic. Pagan is a technical word that simply means someone who is pre-a theistic worldview. Now, let me, let me say this and we're done. Theism, T-H-E-I-S-M. Theism is belief that there is a God, God created, God intervenes in this world, and God can be known. And by the way, if you're a Christian, you are definitely theistic. You believe there's a God, God created, God acts in this world, and God can be known. So there are theists, and then there are Christian theists. I am a Christian theist. A pagan is a non-theistic person. They don't believe there's a creator God, or maybe there's uh, many gods, or maybe the whole universe is God, pantheism, and I'm God too. So I'm not using the word pagan to be um, demeaning. I'm simply trying to identify accurately where masses of the culture are. And for the first time in American history, one out of five people, roughly, 
are non-theists. They, they might not be an atheist, they might be a polytheist or a, a pantheist. But we live in a very interesting world. Hey, all of this piercing where you see people and it looks like a tackle box exploded in their face. And, and people are getting... I saw a guy hit and he had these Teflon implants under his skin to look like little goat horns. Um, very pagan culture we're walking into. So we have truth. We have our relationships. We have prayer. We have the Holy Spirit of God. And we've got to exert these things. So situational awareness. Let's see what the next slide is. Uh, I, um, I don't have time to finish all these slides, so I'm going to tell you one thing and then I'm going to be done. Okay, I'll leave it there. That's a decent quote. Situational awareness. Here are the questions to ask yourself. I'll tell you this and I'm done. Where am I? What is my mission? What tools do I have to work with? And how may I achieve the best possible outcome? That's what situational awareness involves. And I would submit it's time the church asks herself these questions. Where am I? Well, I'll tell you where we're not. We're not in heaven yet. And we're not in the uh, godly America of Ronald Reagan. Reagan, Google this, it's on YouTube. Somebody said, the greatest words ever written in the U.S. Constitution. Reagan looks into the camera and he says, no, the greatest words ever written were these. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16. place melts down with a pulse. Google Ronald Reagan, John 3.16. We're not not there anymore. Uh, Where are we? We're in a world that needs Jesus. Friend, this is not doom and gloom. This is opportunity. Because people dig this stuff. Man, I was in South Dakota doing a debate with an atheist, and I'm talking all everything you've heard right here. And one of the kids from the Secular Student Alliance that booked the atheist to debate me accepted Christ and ran my book table for me. Same thing happened in another city I was in. So where are we? We're in a world of great opportunity. Uh, what is my mission? According to Matthew 28, make disciples. Mark 16, 15, preach the gospel. Defend the faith, 1 Peter 3, 15. Stand up for Jude 3. We've got our mission. You know your mission. And then, what tools do I have to work with? Well, all the promises of God, the Holy Ghost, and intercessory prayer. It's not even a fair fight, okay? That's our toolkit. And how may I achieve the best possible outcome? To live, live every day for Jesus. Um, let's let go of anything that would hinder His work in our lives. And let's let God cleanse us, fill us, send us, and use us Now, I have sinned. I'm four minutes over, and I apologize, Jeremy. But uh, let's pray for the best possible outcome. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank You. Uh, I thank You for 2 Peter 1.16, that we have not followed cleverly devised fables. Lord, this is not a myth or a legend. This is reality. And Father, I pray for a prodigal nation. Lord, we've fallen so far, wandered so much. Lord, in the name of Jesus, would you send a great revival. And Lord, send the Spirit of God to wake up the church, beginning with me, Lord. Father, put some fire in my heart. Lord, and all the people here at this great conference, bless Jeffrey for organizing such a timely, vital conference. And I pray in the name of Jesus that this event would grow and grow and grow. 
And Lord, when all the women and men and teenagers here go back to their respective homes and communities, Lord, may we take with us a commitment, a conviction, a fire, a driving passion that we will be situationally aware, we'll be committed to our Savior and absolutely dedicated to our mission. And Lord, I pray for the day like Habakkuk, the prophet of old, prayed that the knowledge of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Lord, use our lives to that end. In the name of Jesus and for His glory we pray. Amen.